When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's it, everybody. We are back, and this is the HTML All The Things Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about debugging, specifically in our HTML, or CSS, and JavaScript. And no... We won't be solely covering console.log, which is the thing that I use to debug the most, and I know a bunch of other people do as well, and Mike's rolling his eyes, but uh, too bad. But anyway, we're going to be talking about more efficient ways to do that. We'll also probably be talking about console.log as well. Mike has outlined a whole bunch of different uh, methods for us and different things to uh, different tools and different uh, ways to debug various things within our HTML, our CSS, and our JS. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. Leave a review or rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And Mike, I have a weird question for you. I wanted to... (laughs) This is kind of a joke, but then it's been bouncing around my head for like six days now, so maybe it'll happen. But I wanted us to, every week come up with a title for ourselves that's based on the previous week's happenings, whether in <laughs> whether in w- work or real life. So, like, I was going to be, hi, I'm Matt Lawrence, your washed-up golfing developer or something, and something like that, like your washed-up golfer, you know, something like that, and then, and then we could, and then we'd continue. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. Hi, hi, I'm Mike, and I am your... Next.js to SvelteKit migrator. That's my, that's my, that's what I'm doing this week. That's what I was doing this week. And I had a blast actually. We could do, um, we could even like roll it into a personal, like very brief personal segment where we define or describe why that's our title for the week. If we wanted yeah, to add a like personal touch. one line. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it. I like that idea. If, uh, if you guys or gals out there like that idea, please let us know. Uh, tweet us at HTML everything or Instagram at HTML of things and all the other platforms at HTML of things. I kind of want to do it. I kind of like that. I kind of like that, Matt. I think, I think that's a good little personal thing that we can start the show with that won't take up too much of your time, but, but it could and it might be great. Yeah, exactly. It might be good. It might be good. No, that's cool. I like that idea. We got to write that down because if we don't, it'll just be gone. Because my idea for it was like for anyone that's like kind of thinking about whether they would they they want the idea in here is that we used to do weekly pain points and people people kind of thought, hey, that's kind of negative. And that's true. So it's like, okay. But then it was like, hey, let's do like what we're working on. But then sometimes what we're working on is under NDA. So it's like I've been working on a project for a company in the United States, you know, and then that's it. You go into robo mode and you come out. So this I figured, you know, if I'm the washed up golfer, I can just tell you about my last range session and then you'll laugh and then that'll be it. Um, and then you can tell us about your migration and whether that's a pain point or not. At least it's not consistently negative and, at least, and it's not always consistently about work. I like that. Yeah. I think we're going to do it, uh, regardless of everyone's opinions, but let us know what you think. <laughs> just just <laughs> overrode everybody. Yeah. Uh, but okay, let's jump into the episode. We're debugging today, right? So let, let's debug this episode. Um, debugging. Really, 
honestly, it's one of my think most important skills that a developer can learn. And it's really for me when I started to feel like a developer, when I could figure out how to get past a bug or figure out how to get past an issue that I was having. That's when I was like, oh, I could, I could do this. Before that, every time that I would run into an issue that would be kind of like catastrophic for me because I didn't know what to do. Like I didn't know how to solve it. So that's it. So I guess I have to restart. And I did that a couple of times when I was first starting out learning development and everything started to click when I started to realize that, hey, just because there's an issue here, that doesn't mean that's a roadblock. It just means that there's something that I need to figure out in this specific case, right? And with each and every step in your web development journey, HTML, CSS to JavaScript, there's different methods of debugging that I want to cover. Obviously, JavaScript is going to be the most intense one and the one that's going to probably take the longest. And there's a lot of really cool things in there. Like Matt said, console.log is a big one. And I, I wasn't rolling my eyes there, Matt. I was just like being like, yeah, that's obviously the one we're going to cover. And it's still the one that even I use most. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. But I found your title for next week here. Uh, I roll cover up, man. There we go. I roll cover. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. But okay, let's start with HTML. Uh, HTML, as we know, is a markup language. That's how we build our structure of our sites. So a lot of what we're going to be debugging is the structure, the actual, I like uh, Rich Harris called HTML this like very clay-like thing where it feels very physical, right? Out of all the different components in web development, clay, like HTML feels like something you can mold and you can create with. And uh, I, I like that kind of, you know, in, in my head, it kind of made sense. Um, and so that's what we're kind of debugging when we're debugging HTML. We're debugging how it, how the structure of our website is looking. And a lot of times it's going to be either visual or it's going to be something that's not actually something very obvious to you. And it's going to be accessibility related, right? A lot of times if we're, when we're using HTML, the things that are wrong with it aren't that, hey, this block should be above it or below something because that's more obvious and easier to debug. But hey, we should be using an H1 here instead of an H2, or we should be using a button instead of an ahref. We should be using uh, article tags instead of just divs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those are not very obvious. So first thing you can do is you can go into the DOM inspector tool, which is in your dev tools of Chrome, Edge, Firefox, whatever, right? And you can take a look at the structure of your page, like I mentioned. You can see where your divs are, what's a div, what is an H1 tag? What is that? What What's the content inside of your tags and stuff like that? And that's one way you can visually scan and see if you're having an issue with accessibility where you can fix that issue. That's just a kind of a your own manual scanning, if if that makes sense. The other thing you can do is you can check your valid, like you can check if your HTML is valid. And really... There's an old W3Schools tool that can do this, but I don't think it's used very often anymore because a lot of this validation checking is actually bundled now into accessibility checkers. And accessibility checkers are, again, inside your dev tools. You can use Lighthouse. You can use PageSpeed. All of those usually will check accessibility scores as well, right? And this is where it's going to tell you, hey, you're using you know, a, a div when you should be using a button or you're using, you're not, you don't have an alt tag on your images 
or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like a bunch of different, different things that access, that could be deemed as bad accessibility, right? Your colors could be off, whatever. Colors we'll talk about more in CSS, but regardless, a lot of your HTML structure checking is going to be tied to the accessibility checkers of Lighthouse or PageSpeed or whatever you want to use. I do want to point something out here as well that invalid HTML does work usually. So for example, normally what you're supposed to do if you want a custom attribute on an HTML element is you're supposed to use a data attribute. So you're supposed to do like a data dash and then a custom name. And there's some naming conventions you have to follow, obviously. But that's basically how you do it. So if you wanted like a count one, you'd put not just count equals and then one, you would put data dash count equals one. Um, the thing there, though, is that I believe this to be true that like, first of all, you're well, th- this this part's true for sure. If I, if I put just count equals one, that's technically invalid HTML. But like your site's not going to crash. It's not just going to it's not just going to suddenly like throw a fit and not run anymore unless it's tied to some sort of API that like checks the markup and then won't let it run, which is like no one does that. But I also believe that you can address that invalid HTML in CSS so you can go in and literally with an attribute selector in CSS, which is in square brackets, you can address that quote unquote invalid count attribute and it will still work. So many people will think, oh, it's fine. And I'm sure that even I've used invalid HTML here and there. What ends up happening with that usually, though, is even if you first of all, you should not have invalid HTML in order to just be compliant with valid with valid HTML. It also helps with screen readers, for example, so that they know what's going on, because if you're using something that's non-standard, it's like, what is going on here? Like they don't know the the screen readers are programmed to deal with the standard just to deal with a valid validated HTML. So if they're struggling to get through your HTML, that's not good. But I have absolutely used invalid HTML in an emergency where it comes up as something like, you know, we need something changed in our website's visual thing. We like absolutely need it changed in our CMS, whether it be WordPress or another enterprise CMS is usually the case. Usually it's an enterprise CMS is so convoluted that I just have to quickly do something invalid to ensure that like that incident is solved. And then eventually someone else will come in and fix it up or whatever. Usually it's something overlapping the price or something. And people are, you know, in a panic and it's, what do we do? What do we do? It's like, okay, hang on. Let me just do this quick bandaid slash hack before we can actually figure out a proper solution because this enterprise CMS is so, so convoluted that I can't just fix it for you. Yeah, it's a good point. Like, especially when you get into those kind of really complex CMSs and really complex, uh, just full on platforms where you don't fully control what's going to be displayed for you. Uh, in terms of HTML, those, that's where going in and manually kind of going through and figuring out what divs are properly structured and what divs aren't is going to be the mo- give you the biggest payoff. Unfortunately, sometimes you just can't do anything about it. Like I know there's some older CMSs and older platforms that will just flat out render incorrect HTML. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No matter what. And you just have to kind of live with that because they give you other features or your company has chosen that 10 years ago and you have to work around it. So it is what it is, uh, but we, it's we good don't to know we don't condone it. having it like like I want to be clear, like we're not condoning doing Band-Aid fixes like Band-Aid fixes are meant to be a temporary fix. Uh, like a real world example of us doing that is we weren't in charge of this particular project. They called me in because I was working on something else for them. And so then they called me in and I only had access to the CMS level. So I had to like go into like a little embed 
and type my own HTML and it had to be invalid. And I was like, this will, this will cover you for the weekend. Then call your web agency, the people that actually run this thing and get them to fix it. And they did. So I just, I'm not, I'm not condoning invalid markup. If, you know, if people are like, HTML, the things, things we should use invalid stuff, like try to avoid it wherever you can. Yep, exactly. And okay, moving on, uh, HTML was kind of like a smaller part. Obviously, CSS is a bigger one because it controls how our HTML is displayed on the page, right? All the styling, all the like colors, everything is controlled by CSS. And there's a lot of things here that you're going to need to debug. Like it, it's weird because initially when you're just laying out a really simple page, you're going to think like, oh, this is, you know, fairly straightforward. You just have like, you know, a header, a, a body and a footer or something like that. Like it's, it's not that crazy. And you, you're not going to get into this mindset that this is the thing that's going to stop me from, <laughs> from completing my project. But as it gets more complicated, as you have different plugins coming in and different, uh, you know, modals and stuff like that, it starts to get, to the point where you need to know how to debug it. Like you need to know how to go through and figure out where your stuff is, why your stuff is overflowing, why your stuff is overlapping, why your div isn't even appearing on the screen, right? Like that happens to me all the freaking time. Like it just, I have a div there. It's supposed to be there. It's just not there. And yeah, this is where this is going to come in handy. So the first thing here, and this one that I think almost any CSS developer has used is the 1px solid red border, right? That's a classic one where you just put a border around you, you like artificially, you put it in your CSS to see if your stuff is showing up properly, right? Because sometimes a lot of, a lot of times you'll have, you'll think that it's supposed to be in one place, right? And you think it's supposed to be at one size because you've set it to that, but because of inherited properties, it's completely somewhere else and a completely different size. And without putting a border around it that you can visually see right away, it's going to be hard to tell what's going on without, you know, you manually have to go through it. This is uh, a common one too, with a little bit of CSS logic. So I think I mentioned this in one of our previous CSS episodes, but with an attribute selector, you can check and see if uh, any of the alt tags are, uh, have invalid uh, writing in them. Like let's say you just literally wrote the word placeholder. You can say, Hey, all elements uh, that have the uh, alt set to placeholder, you know, give the, give us a red outline. Uh, all of them that are blank, give us a red outline. And then you go go through, the red outline will obviously show up and it'll be obvious unless your design has a lot of red in it for some reason. And then you'll go in there and fix it. Another thing I just want to mention as well with the red color is that I use this type of thing all the time, including in our TikTok videos, which are little uh, tutorials. If you haven't checked those out, go check them out. But what I do is I use a lot of red and a lot of primary colors. Oftentimes I've been changing it up a little bit now just for some, you know, visual change in the videos. But uh, when I'm running around, I literally will have like a big red square and then a big like blue square and stuff like that. And I'll have those and they look horrible, but it's for placement to make sure, Hey, is this, is this overlapping? Um, you know, this one needs overflow hit and this one doesn't. Is there anything going on that's weird here? Did the, did the margin mess this up? And now I'm, uh, tucking in underneath the scroll bar or something strange. Uh, do I have a horizontal scroll bar now? And why is that? I can easily see that. So those big primary colors, uh, using them in orders, like Mike already said, but also just in, just as background colors does help a lot. Yep. Exactly. And this isn't a hack. You know what I mean? Like th this isn't something you should get away from. 
just because you're maturing as a CSS developer, this is something you can still lean into and use on a daily basis because like Matt said, it's just great for checking to see where, where placement is, initial layouts. Like I do it all the time. Like I literally do it and I won't stop. So <laughs> that's, that's the reality of it. The next part of CSS debugging comes in the, again, uh, the dev tools of your browser. So Chrome, Firefox, doesn't matter. Uh, your dev tools will have a styles tab where you will see when you highlight over any of the HTML elements on your page, you will see what styles are associated with them. And you'll have like a whole list of the styles going from top uh, cascade, right? The the most uh, the most used one. What's it called? Uh, the top one is always the one that is the most like active. Root? The root. No, the root is at the very bottom, right? Root, like when you're going through the styles tab on the right hand side of the developer. Oh, dev, I thought you were talking tools. about like literally just straight up HTML. Yeah, because like uh, whatever has it, whatever has priority is going to be at the top usually of that tab of that like. Uh, right. Thing. When you're browsing like specifically the styles on an element and then they'll, they'll I mean, on edge anyway, there's like an element one that's blank. And that's where, like, if you want to experiment with code, you can. That's the easiest, usually the easiest way to go in there and just quickly change it. And it'll overwrite a lot of the stuff that's underneath, or all of it, depending on your settings. Yeah. Top to bottom, it overrides. Okay, right. So that's how you know what is going to be actually affecting your styles. And you could go in there, like Matt said, you can either write new styles at the top there, or you can go in and change the existing styles. And I do this a ton when I'm doing fine tuning of the of my layouts. Right. So Best if way I to need do it. to. Yeah, exactly. It's the fastest and easiest way to do it. And then you can just copy paste whatever you've changed or written over and put it into your actual static CSS. So again, it saves you from that extra step of going into your, uh, going into your IDE, your code editor and having to type it in. Even if you have hot reloading on, it's still that extra step of pressing save here. It's instant. Like you literally changing it pixel by pixel. You're going to see how it affects each pixel is doing it. So this is a really important one, one that you really need to have in your arsenal as a, as a debugger, as a CSS developer. You need to be able to use fully utilize that styles tab in your dev tools. A tab that I use less is the computed tab, but it's also a really important one because the computed tab will not show you just the CSS that's applying to it. It'll also show you like the calculated CSS, the calculated, uh, calculated styles, everything that's actually being presented on that element, right? A big so one is the, the, the margins and the padding. Correct. The margins and the padding are something that's a lot of times dynamically placed based on the size of your screen, based on whatever. It'll show you exactly what those values are because it's being computed and it's also a tab, again, in your dev Chrome tools or Firefox tools, doesn't matter. Another thing that can get a little bit complicated and gets really complicated depending on how many plugins you have and how many uh, different uh, libraries you have is Z-Index. So Z-Index is layers, the layers of your website. So what's supposed to be on top, what's supposed to be below, you know, um, and this... This can get really complicated, especially if you have you can, you can have up to is it infinite amount of numbers in the index? It's a high number. I think it's in the it's definitely in the thousands or something. Uh, but it, I, at last check, there there's a limit. But you're you're hopefully not going to hit that. But I've seen a hit. 
I've seen random plugins be like, oh, we need to be on top of everything. So we're going to be 9999, right? So, like, so, well, like using the top, like to, to be the most, like some places, yeah, like some plugins and stuff will use the max number, whatever it is, to go to the right to the top. But I mean, you shouldn't be having something on every single one of them layers. I would hope not. Sh- I would really hope not. And, but if you do, there again in DevTools is a Z index troubleshooter. So if you go to your dev tools, click on the three dots in the top right corner. This is mostly for Chrome dev tools and edge dev tools. Uh, you click on more tools and there's a layers for Z index, uh, button there. And it'll show you actually like a, almost a 3D layout of your website with all the different layers. And you can kind of scroll through them and go through them and tap on them and see where the actual Z index layers are and what's over top of what else. It's a really interesting tool. It's a little bit glitchy sometimes because especially if you have a lot of layers, it can get uh, quite render heavy because it's again, it's 3D render. Um, but regardless, it's something that I use sparingly, but it, when it, when it, I need it, it has helped me a ton figuring out, okay, why is this on top of this? Why is this on top of that? Um, but rule of thumb, Matt, you're right. Usually you're not going to have, a, you know, something on every layer. If you're building everything yourself and you're not relying on third party tools, my recommendation is to really stick to maximum 10. And if you can, even less and have them set very deliberately. So you know that like, Hey, modals should live on, layer six and uh, regular, you know, stuff should live on layer one and everything like, you know, have a design system in place that makes sense for your layers. Otherwise it can get extremely complicated really quickly. Next, we're going to talk about some Chrome extensions and some dev browsers. So first Chrome extension that I use on a pretty consistent basis is pesticide. So this Chrome extension will show every HTML element on the page as like a box or a circle, how whatever it is, right? It will break it down and it'll show you where everything is, how everything's overlaid. And I really like this one because sometimes you see like on your page, you see a couple things overlapping and you're like, well, is it overlapping or are they just on top of each other or what? You can turn on your pesticide and see the exact borders of your divs, right? You can see all that without having to put 1px solid on every single div that you have. This is essentially providing outlines. So one thing I actually wanted to talk about a little bit uh, in the 1px solid border is that you should probably use outline instead of border because border will actually change the the size of the div. Like border is a calculated aspect of your div, whereas outline will not change the size of your div or whatever HTML element. So if you use outline, when you're debugging, you know that that's not actually affecting the layout of your page. It's just showing you where that item is. And again, this debugger pesticide Chrome extension does that. It just puts an outline of various degrees of uh, various types of outlines on your divs on the page all at once so that you can see what is currently being displayed on the page and how. The only, I guess, difference, I'm not even sure if this is right, is isn't there like box sizing border box and that will include border? I know it includes like padding and margin, I believe that will make it so that like if I tell my box to be 200 and I do box sizing border box, it will include the padding and the I believe the borders and maybe the I don't know about the margins. I can't remember now. I mean, there's so many little CSS like things where I'll know it really good for a bit and then just completely forget. Uh, I did want to bring up something, though, about this is that um, I actually forgot this. Z index tool uh, in the dev tools and this extension existed. Um, they're, they're good, but 
I do want to say that the reason why I forgot is because I have like a standard that I use where I will say, this is where I'm going to put items that need to be up top. Like this is the number I'm going to choose. Everything else is going to be below that. Uh, You know, text will be here, this and that. And I try to use that index at, at the least amount possible. I try to just completely ignore that index unless I absolutely need it, just so I'm not adding nuance. And that has helped me a lot. Obviously, I would still use this tool if I remember if I remember it existed um, in the event that I'm troubleshooting somebody else's work. But anything that I've done more recently is generally unless I've forgotten to change it under some sort of standard that I've come up with. That's a really good point. Actually, using it when you actually need it is a key thing with Z index, because if you're going to put Z index on every div that you create and every section, that's going to get that's going to be disaster. So just, you know. I think the default Zen index is, is it zero or one? I don't know. But regardless, stick to the default for everything. Only the stuff that needs to actually be over top or below something is what you need to actually worry with Zen index. Good point, Matt. Um, last thing here for CSS is use a dev browser. Uh, dev browsers like Polypane. We had Killian actually on our show. I think it's like over a year ago now, maybe two years. I don't know. Uh, He's created a really, really, really good dev browser, which not only does like it does, sorry, it does a ton of different things. Its main focus, or at least what it was created to do, was display different screen sizes all on one kind of viewport, right? So you could see like a mobile screen, a full, like a, a you know, 1080p screen, a 720p screen, a tablet screen, all in one view. So that when you make a change in your code, you can see how it affects all the different views all at once. That was its main focus initially, and that's a really good troubleshooting tool and something that you should be using when you're developing mobile mobile applications. You need to see how it looks on all the different screen sizes. Um, but they've he's also added in a ton of other tools, a ton of other a ton of other like specifically HTML and CSS debugging tools. His accessibility tools are probably the best in the industry right now. Like they will check every single everything on the page, show you exactly how to fix it. In, in fact, That's so cool. yeah, it's literally a really really powerful browser for developers, especially when you're talking about HTML and CSS. Um, it'll run like uh, Lighthouse scores on reload, like on a consistent basis. It'll do. Uh, there's so many functions. Like his features page is now like ten times longer than when we talked to him initially. So it's it's gotten really out of hand in terms of how many features there are. But it's still kind of, you know, it's still, it starts you off slow. It starts you off with the main function being the art, like the board of different screen sizes. And you can progressively add whatever you need as you start learning it. So I think it's a, it's a good tool to try to definitely check out. I think he has a free trial. Um, there, it is a paid tool at the end of the day. But if you're in an agency or if you're working on pro, on, you know, websites for, you know, profit, <laughs> uh, I highly recommend that you convince your company or yourself to pay for it. It'll help you. Um, next thing we're going to talk about is JavaScript. JavaScript is going to be the biggest one because there's a ton of things we need to do with a ton of things that we need to debug. JavaScript is not an easy language when it comes to debugging. Uh, it's also not the hardest one, but due to its scripting nature, due to its lack of types initially, you're going to find yourself debugging it quite a bit. The first thing we're going to talk about is alerts. Um, this was the classic debugging method. I don't really recommend it right now. I hate I hate alerts. Yeah, I've I mean I've put an alert in a in a loop once, and that was like oh my god. Yep. Like, 
Yep. Pressing OK every five seconds or every second even. Um, that's great. But yeah, not recommended alert if for people that don't know will actually pop up like a little wind, like a little alert window in your browser where it'll ask you to like press OK to cancel it or close it. Um, there really is no. I'm trying to think of an actual like legit reason to use it now over console.log. Uh, well, I, 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 do, I do have one, uh, maybe not for debugging, but it, it's an alert or maybe it's a pop up window or something, but it, it's in the same form factor. And that is when you're at a, when you're on a page and you've edited the page and you try to leave and then your browser will let you know. I think it's, I think it's in an alert that it'll say, Hey, you know, if you leave this, you're leaving some things that are not saved. Like, is that okay? Yeah. And no. So like that's I like a legitimate use case. I think there's legitimate use cases of alert for sure. Like in, in that sense and like other like security situations or yeah, for a form input, sometimes you want to do alerts. Um, but overall for debugging, I don't like it used to be a thing. I know people used to use it because I used it. Uh, but I think it's got moved on from that to console.log, right? Console.log is the de facto method of debugging JavaScript code. Um, whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not going to get too far into, but it's the, the fact. Most developers will use a lot of console.logs in your code. Let me break it down what it is. When you're writing JavaScript, it runs, it has an execution time. When you, an event goes, it runs. If there's a function that happens, it runs. If you want to find out what's happening as it's running, you can write a console.log statement. And then in the brackets of console.log, you can write a string like, hey, I'm running. You can write a variable that's currently being worked on during that st- whatever statement you're you're writing it in. You can see what the result of that variable is at that specific time frame, right? So it could be really useful. Let's say you're in the process of getting some data from the server and you're having issues figuring out what that data is coming back as. So if you do a console log at the time that it's coming back, you can see, hey, does it have data inside of it? Is it, is it there a state variable? Is there, you know, a time variable that I can use? This is a way to kind of get that without having to uh, dive deeply into documentation that might not even exist because you're doing something very uh, random or specific or custom, right? So console.log is really important for data. It's really important for state. So let's say you're trying to state change the state of a uh, a button from like loading to not loading. And for some reason, it's not working. Throw a constant log with the variable of the loading variable, whatever is actually loading and see what's happening at that time that it's not working. Right. Cause it, when it runs, you know, it's going to be running at that specific moment, wherever you put it in your code. So that's where a lot of constant log is used, just debugging the actual JavaScript code that's running when it runs and seeing what the results are at that specific time. That's why I think it's still being used so powerfully because it really does like I'm going to go through a lot of different other methods after this. But at the end of the day, all these other methods kind of do the same thing as constant lock. Some of them do it a little bit more elegantly, I guess. But even for myself, like I've used all of the things that I'm going to be talking about. I still will quickly write up a constant log statement rather than go through the process of like setting up a debugger and stuff like that. One thing I do want to mention it about console.log, and this is so console.log is obviously put into your JavaScript and you can run it, you know, when a function runs or whatever you need. But if let's say the code is setting a variable to or supposed to be setting a variable to just three when it runs and the code's done running, um, oftentimes, you know, let's say you have a bug there. 
I won't even do a console.log. I'll just literally go into the console and just like type in the name of that variable to see what it's currently set to. You can do that too. Um, I do that in, com- in, uh, comparison, I guess, to console.log. So I'll have set, let's say two functions. I press a button and two functions are supposed to run. Uh, the first function sets the, sets a variable called number to the number one. And then a couple of seconds later, it's supposed to be set to two. Well, the end state, you know, if I'm just sitting at the page and, and the two functions have fired is it's supposed to be set to two. But for some reason, it, that's like, you know, not happening. Or if I wanted to see if that's happening, I will do a console.log in the first function because then it'll tell me, hey, you know, it's been it's been set to one. And then I can just check without another console.log in my code. I can just check that at the end and just type in the name like num or whatever, I, whatever variable name I said. And it will like tell me what the current state is and the current state. If I've waited long enough, it should be two. And then I can I can quickly just compare and contrast to my console.logs. You don't need like 100 console.logs in your because obviously this is a very simple example, but you can use the end state and just quickly check. You don't need to have logs everywhere because I know that even I've like le- actually left console.logs in in production and stuff like that, um, which isn't a huge problem unless it's like a security thing. But like usually it isn't. Usually it's just something stupid like I'm running <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But. Yep, exactly. And I think it was a really good point to mention the the fact that you can write stuff into the console in for for console.logs. Uh, I forgot to mention the fact that all of this logs, quote unquote, are actually found in your dev tools. So if you go to your dev tools, there's a console uh, tab. Again, we talked about all the different tabs. There's a console tab, uh, usually at the bottom or whatever, or at the t- near the top, where you can see all these logs that you would be putting into your code. And Matt's right. There's all, there's also a input on that tab where you can actually write not just const.logs, you can write any JavaScript, right? So you can even write get elements by IDs and class names and figure and like you, you can write a whole like fun- function in there if you want to just test something out really quickly on the end state of your page. So the big indicate the big differentiator here is that this is the always going to be the end state. That's the only time you're going to have value over const.logs unless we use debugger statements. And that's going to be the thing that I'm going to talk about right now because debugger statements actually allow you to put, again, it's similar to const.log where you would write it in the place that you need to figure out what's wrong and you need to figure out like around that area. So you put a debugger statement instead of const.log, open up your dev tools, run your code, and it's going to, instead of spitting out uh, the console.log that you wrote, it's going to stop and breakpoint at that point in your code in the sources tab, again, in the dev tools. There, now you're in a frozen state where you can see on the side there in the sources tab, all of the variables that are currently in your scope, the current, like the function scope, what they are at that time. You can step through them. You can check, you can check them out and you can go back to your console tab. And this is where you can state wise figure out what's going on with JavaScript as well in that input bar. So there's debugger statements are kind of a more advanced tool to const.log because it allows you to see around everything instead of having to like type out every variable that you want to see at that specific time in console statements. You can just look at them inside the dev tools. It's a little bit more cumbersome because now you have to find those variables. You have to go to the dev tools. You have to be looking deeply in there. It's a little bit slower for sure. That's why console.log is still used so heavily, and that's why I'm not going to be stopping using it, even though debugger is technically better. But it's something where if I'm in serious trouble, 
and I need to step through the code very deliberately and see what everything is happening around, I'll always go to the debugger. And with the debugger also comes breakpoints, like I mentioned. Debugger sets a programmatic breakpoint through an actual line of code that you write called debugger. But you can actually set a breakpoint yourself inside the sources tab of the DevTools. And again, refresh, relaunch that app, that, that piece of code, and it'll stop at those breakpoints as well, right? So again, the combination of these is going to be very powerful for you when you're debugging because you can step through your code step by step by step by step. You can jump into a function and see what's do, what's happening inside that function. A lot of times the complicated debugging comes in when it's not your function that's having an issue, but it's the library's function, right? Well, how are you going to put a console.log inside the library function? You can't because it's like in your NPM or it's like really complicated to do it. Well, you can put a deep, you can put a breakpoint and then step into that function and see what's happening line by line. This is viable for a lot of things, not viable for some, especially if you're talking about, you know, something that loops, like if, it, if it's something that loops over every single element in an array, that could take you a million years. So you have to figure out ways around that with const.logs. You have to figure out ways around that with proper debugger statements. Like you have to like put in code to debug sometimes, which is a little bit screwy. But when it gets super complicated and you can't figure it out, sometimes you have to think outside the box, think outside the tools that are available. That would be why that people like lean toward console log, right? Because they don't want to put additional lines of code in other than the the console.log, of course, um, which is easy enough to just control F and find that. They don't want to be messing with too much code. I do have a question actually about this. So let's just say, for example, we have the same example where push a button. There's two functions. One of them changes a variable, the, the variable num to to the number one. And then another one happens a few minutes later, a few seconds later, uh, it sends it up to two. Could you break at one and then use the console to, to check at that time, like without a yes. console log? So you could Correct. break at that point and then I'd type in like, you know, what is what is num? Obviously, I'm not literally typing that exact, but what is num? And it would say, oh, it's one. I could like use the console at that point. So then that, I'm just, I thought that it was important to note because some people would have this now this complex debugging code and then they try to console log everything when that's not necessarily what they have to do. They could break and then just use the console at that time instead of having like another five, six lines, <laughs> like a bunch of console logs. 100%. Yeah. Then I do that quite often, again, only in serious situations of debugging, but you can absolutely break there and just go. <clears throat> All right. Moving on to the next thing here is the stack trace. So stack traces, again, they go in line with breakpoints and debuggers. Um, when you breakpoint, a stack trace will show you what got you to that point. So what functions were called before you got to that point to, to whatever broke it. So if you don't know what's causing an issue, if you don't know what's calling the function that's causing the issue, this is where you would look because you can like step, step by step being like, okay, it was function foo that called function fa that called function ra that called function do. And it's in do that I have, I'm having that issue. So I go to do and I see like, oh, I'm passing in the wrong value to do. I'm just giving you a totally arbitrary example, but I'm just saying like you can go step by step in a stack trace of what's calling that function to cause it to break at that point. Is, was that a, was that an off brand like Skyrim? Fusroda, yeah. Yeah. I, that was very off brand. Um, <laughs> avoiding avoiding copyright you've made an rpg Correct. where it's not Correct. the dragonborn it's the, yeah. <laughs> the the born of the dragon 
Yep. Born of the Dragon. I love it. Durofas. Um, next thing here. <laughs> I just the- toss another one in there. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing here is the VS Code debugger. So these are like your launch.json files that you would use in VS Code to attach your VS Code debugger to your website. I use this one the least out of everything that I'm going to be talking about because I just don't see any benefit to it usually. Sometimes it's nice to be able to debug directly in your code that you're writing. But for me, opening up the dev tools is a little bit easier. Uh well, we're going to, again, VS Code debugger tools. It is something that I use very sparingly when it's a very specific application that maybe doesn't have a visual um, UI, especially. So if it's just like a node application, sometimes I will use a VS Code debugger just because it's a little bit easier. But for the most part, I stick to debug tools like uh, Chrome tools. Next thing is Postman or the VS Code client, Thunder client. So Postman and Thunder client. They're not specifically JavaScript debugging tools, but sometimes what's going to happen is you're going to be calling an API and the response that you're getting is just not correct. <clears throat> or maybe you're getting an error in the response. And when you do that through code, it can be a little bit cumbersome because you got to like set it up. You got to put breakpoints and all that. You can actually have a third party client like Postman that will just do a direct call to an API and send back all the information as if you were actually doing it in code. So this is a great way to quickly test APIs, to quickly spin up like how I'm going to access the APIs in my code. So if you don't know where to put your bearer tokens, like your auth tokens, you don't know if you're going to be using authentication with login and password. This is where this is your testing ground and your debugging ground for getting that set up because it's a little bit easier than writing a fetch function just to test it out. Again, I highly recommend it. ThunderClient is my preference right now. Postman is great, but ThunderClient just kind of works really easily inside of VS Code, makes you not leave your development environment. <clears throat> uh, ChatGPT, obviously a newer one, one that we have to talk about, one that I've used on a pretty consistent basis now. If I'm having issue in a specific file of code, a lot of times what you can do is you can copy paste that code into uh, ChatGPT and ask it to find the issue. <clears throat> Mike is Mike is dying my throat, on camera. My throat right is now. dying. Yeah, <clears throat> I've been a little bit sick. My bad. <clears throat> Obviously, my my voice is not lasting very long right now. But this ChatGPT is a pretty powerful one. It can really kind of expedite where you're going to be looking, especially. So a lot of times you just don't know what's causing an issue. It might be a space. It might be a semicolon that you forgot. It might be something really small and it's really difficult to find as a person looking through uh, like millions of lines of code, not millions, even like hundreds. ChatGPT can find it a lot faster and you can even feed it in the error that you're getting. So let's say you're getting some random like server 300 error, server 302, blah, 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 line 25, whatever. You can feed that in to chat to ChatGPT and with the code and it can give you a more specific solve, right? Or it can give you a direction to look at least. So use it when you need it. Um, but I would, I would start to rely on it more often because I find it actually finds code, finds errors faster than I do. So I throw into via, into chat GPT faster than I would just start going through console.logs at this point. So I, I have a question and a point about this. I'll, I'll say the point first. The point that I'm about to say is if you have some sort of code that's supposed to be secure, don't give it to ChatGPT. I'm not saying not to trust ChatGPT, but I personally would not give that out. Like if the code itself is not supposed to be given out, don't give out that code. I just want to be clear. 
if for if, if for some reason like that includes like something if you're trying to like give out like if if your code at that time contains an API key for example I wouldn't do that maybe modify it to the point where it's like you can just put like one 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 or something and then say tell it oh this is my API key because it's not going to know any different I just wanted to p- point that out I don't want people taking secure things and sharing that out like yes ChatGPT is a bot I don't. I know I'm not saying it can be trusted. I'm not saying it can't be trusted, but just consider it a person. That's how that, that's my personal rule is that consider it a person. And if you're not allowed to share it with a person that's outside of the company, an external person, then don't share it out there. I just want to be clear. And so Treat like, take it like out the sensitive. Overflow. Treat it like Stack Overflow. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like not saying people are going to be listening on your conversations. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but just treat it like as if they are. That, that, that's my recommendation. Stack Overflow is a good example, Mike. And now my question is, so let's just say we have a problem with my code. I copy paste it and you were saying, you know, that it'll find logical problems is kind of what I got from what you said. So it might say, oh, you're forgetting to like do this loop one more time or something, for example. So my question is, how do I present it with a problem? So I take my code and I paste it in there, but do I surround it with a question? So do I say, uh, this is supposed to display six images it's only displaying five. Can you figure out why? It do is that literally what I'm doing? And it will tell me. I mean, it's different every time, I guess, but it, it'll tell me what's wrong, and it will usually spit out the corrected function. And that's it. Like it's it's almost like interacting with a person. It is like interacting with a person. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it it's a super powerful tool if you use it correctly. Sometimes it will put you in the wrong direction. So know that. Just like a person. Yep. So you can always course correct it, always tell it, hey, that didn't work. It'll try something new. So you can keep prompting it to get different ideas. And really, debugging is just about getting to the next idea of how to fix it, right? A lot of times you're going to be stuck. That's where all these tools have to come in, have to come in, right? When you're stuck, when you don't know what to try next is the toughest part as a developer. One thing that I don't have written here that I should is taking a step back. So when you're stuck and you're just debugging, you've put console logs everywhere, debuggers, everything, you don't know what's going on, stop. Either work on something else or literally take a step back and go for a walk or play a game, whatever. Stop thinking about the problem. Come back to it fresh. I can't tell how many times that's worked for me. The success rate of that is 100% on my for, for me personally, I don't know how it is for everyone else, but every time I've had a like a show-stopping issue that I just can't solve, taking a step back, go going to do something else, coming back on it the next day has worked 100% of the time. That's how crazily good that technique is. Even though it's not technical, it's not, you know, there's no magic, there's no science behind it. It does 100% work. Well, I actually listened to a... I think it was a summary of a study, so it's still, you know, the jury's still out on it. But there was some sort of indication uh, in this study that if you hyper focus or focus on something for too long, you actually start not paying attention to it. And this might, I would estimate personally, be maybe one of the reasons why, like why this method works is because you might be hyper fixated on why this button is not changing those numbers. And you're there for so long that you're like you, I guess, are thinking about it at the forefront of your mind. But however your brain works, it's not paying attention as much as it as it could. But then once you leave and then come back, 
it, it it's better. And this this does work for other things too. I mean, I've been trying to learn how to play golf for over a year, and I'll get stuck on something like the irons and be like, "This is you know not good," and I'll just go to the driver or something, and then come back to the irons after a few hits, and then it's like my brain is ready to pay attention again. So this is I would estimate is one of the reasons why. And so ever since I watched that video that, that was summarizing this study, I've actually started doing that. And I, I'm never one to do that. I'm always one like I'm staying here until this is fixed. And I still do that with the allocate with some time allocated to walk away now. So I don't know if that's better or worse, but it seems to be helping me anyway. Yeah, it, it's tough to know when that's that like point is where you need to step back i have like i've gotten better at it but only because i've screwed it up so many times so i think as you're starting like you'll probably grind a lot more but know that there is always that option to step back just know it in the back of your mind it for me it's when i start to pace when i get the impulse to pace sometimes pacing and i don't mean not necessarily literally pacing although sometimes it is it's like i'm just trying to think through something so i just like kind of want to get up and walk around i sitting at the desk for a while but if I find myself obsessively pacing and not moving forward at all on what it is, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to like stop thinking about this for a minute, go get a coffee or something, or turn on like a quick YouTube video and then come back right after it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like there's just a, mi- a million different things that can happen to kind of trigger that like response of, hey, I need to stop and I need to get back. But just know that you need to be able to do that sometimes. The next thing here is manually breaking functions. This one's weird, um, but it definitely does work and it's more complex. But essentially, sometimes you'll have your code that's running and something goes wrong, but there's no clear indicator where it's going wrong. Okay. So something like uh, a timer goes off or maybe your validator is not doing it correct, like not validating correctly. I don't know. There's a million different things that can happen, but a way to troubleshoot something like that is literally going in function by function and breaking it and seeing if that causes the same issue. And if that causes the same issue, then you know, hey, it's in this function that something is breaking. So breaking a function could be as easy as just, you know, stopping a return statement or, you know, putting an if statement around it so it doesn't run, you're commenting it out, whatever, right? And seeing what what that has what that impact has effect has on your code. This usually is important for legacy code when you're coming in and you're not the one that wrote it and you're just trying to figure out how the code works. Just commenting out chunks and seeing what that does can teach you more than, you know, stepping through it step by step. This is just like a faster way to get to the problem. And last thing I want to talk about is how do you debug in production? Okay, how do you debug when your code is already running on someone else's computer? The kind of difficulty with JavaScript, especially client-side JavaScript, is that we don't get those logs. Like a lot of times in traditional development, you'll have a server that's running most of your code, right? And a lot of times when something goes wrong, you'll have server logs to tell you like, hey, this is what happened. This is the error that I got. With JavaScript, that doesn't happen very often. A lot of times the code that you need to debug is on someone's computer that's running somewhere in, you know, the US or Australia or whatever. There are tools now that can actually send you the information of an error from someone else's computer. Tools like Sentry.io, Replay.io, and LogRocket 
can give you a ton of different ways to debug client-side errors and are extremely important in production applications, especially when you're launching new versions or you're launching something else. You need to know what's breaking the JavaScript that's running on your site. And without having it, without having some sort of system in there to send you those errors. And a lot of times these errors don't just come in as like, Hey, there's a line of text that went wrong. They'll come in as like a session replay and show you like visually what, what the user did to get to that error and the error output. I guess it's similar to a tool I saw a number of years ago where they were using, uh, they were using a tool like this, but it wasn't for debugging. It was for marketing. And they were trying to figure out why the person wasn't clicking a certain thing. I think it might have been sign up for a newsletter or something or why they had something in their cart and then never ended up actually like going through with the purchase type thing. There there was a some sort of session replay thing of that. And so like it, this just makes sense to to have that for for technical reasons. But I do have a question about this. So we've all been on a, like a popular website like Amazon or wherever. And we're we've as web developers or even just accidentally as a website user, we've, you know, inspected element and there's like 40 errors in there. Some of those errors are because they're trying to support 14,697,000 billion browsers. And obviously I made up number and there's some like IE code that's not working obviously, but is breaking, but it should break because you on Chrome or edge Chromium or whatever are using like a more modern version of that function, let's say, for example. What's your take on that? So those big sites, those really popular sites, they'll have a ton of warnings and a ton of errors. And, you know, obviously in this particular case, you wouldn't want all those remote errors. It's like 40 per session. And God knows how many sessions those big sites have. So what's your take on that? Are you, you know, chasing down errors that are actually affecting the user's experience only? And would you say... Not necessarily even with one of these replay tools, but would you say that you're trying to eliminate all errors or are you trying to eliminate errors that the user would notice, such as a button not doing what it's supposed to? So the reality is a lot of those errors that you're seeing in your console are coming from Chrome extensions and uh, ad blocking or DNS blocking stuff. Okay. So most of the errors, I would say, are stuff that's external to the actual you to the actual um, website. You those are filtered out usually with these tools. Okay. Like so, they won't come. So the errors that do come in sometimes you do have some errors that are like, okay, you know that error is going to come, and it doesn't affect anything, right? Ideally, you don't want that as a developer, but you know sometimes maybe it's just reality. <coughs> What you do in that case is you filter those out. Like you, you tell the tool, log rocket, whatever, that you don't care about those errors and it won't send you those at all. But they should be very few and far between. Like I want to emphasize that if you do have consistent errors in your dev console, on your clients, computers, whatever, that's something you should absolutely fix. That is having a detrimental effect in some way, shape or form. Again, if it's a, a ad blocking error, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual errors that have some repercussions. Maybe it's not visual repercussions, but they might be like an infinite loop repercussions. They might be repercussions on anything else. They might be exploits that people can use. I don't know. Or even like corrupting the data in the database where it's like instead of like the ID numbers getting put in there twice or something like that, where like, you know, your JavaScript is interpreting something that the users typed in twice for some reason. 
Correct. You should not have those errors. You should not have errors in your console. That, that, that pretty, it seems like an obvious statement, but it's something that I think a lot of developers don't care about as much because a lot of times those errors are inconsequential. But as the more you allow that, the more noise happens and the less you pay attention to your errors as well. So it's like, it, there's so many trickle down effects of allowing that to happen in a, a development environment that could detrimentally affect everything. So definitely don't have that. Well, how much experience do you have with those instances in which, I mean, I, I see it most frequently, I guess, with MS uh, or like Microsoft, I mean, like Internet Explorer errors, where I'll literally see something like MS uh, IE fix function didn't run this properly. And it's obviously because that's no longer a modern way to do it. You know, it's probably trying to inject some sort of CSS or something. And it's almost like sometimes I find that the the person that made it is is relying on the error out. So that the function doesn't continue to run, I guess. And then you should it have doesn't a catch. do anything. There should be a catch for those. So like you can right. easily catch those errors where like, yeah, you know they're gonna happen because it's gonna like it's trying to accommodate for older browsers and it doesn't. But if you have a catch, then it won't be registered as an error. That's the point of the try catch. Okay. Yeah. So that's literally the point. So I would I would not accept that as like a valid excuse to have an error in your console. But you've seen that too, right? Like I've, I've definitely a seen it times, a, yeah. a million times on big sites, especially where clearly there's like 1400 tools running probably <laughs> it like on their side, there's like 1400 things. Like Correct. one thing's capturing, one thing's doing this and that, and they're trying to support everybody. And it's just a big, big mess. Yeah, exactly. So like this is like, I'm opening up um, Amazon right now and I see one error and I'm not sure if it's, an Amazon error or something. It's like a log error. Like your but ad block or something. I turn off my ad block and I did an incognito. If I put it, if I do it in regular, I have like a million errors. So I do see one, I see two errors. I see two errors here. So on Amazon. So it's not terrible, but it's something that they could definitely probably work on. So one thing again. I see a lot of errors on actually is editors. So oh, like yeah. a site, like, you know, like you're in, you're in the editor for like, I haven't checked Webflow specifically, but let's just say it's Webflow's editor or any any editor, no code editor, WordPress editor. You see a whole crap load of errors. But then on the site, you know, it's pretty clean usually now, especially nowadays. Like it's, you know, last few years, I'd say it's like really kind of cleaned up their act. But it's like the editor is, is still just loading a whole bunch of garbage that I guess it's because you're kind of in the back end doing stuff. So they're not going to clean up the back end to be like consumer clean, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, Plasmic right now, their errors, and it's looking, most of these look actually to be century i.io errors, which means that my ad blocker is stopping them. Ah, okay. So if you're seeing century errors, again, century is, uh, situation, um, with, uh, century is one of these tools that can give you session replays and stuff like that. That is, and you're seeing the error, that means that you're blocking them from going right. in. So even if there is an error, if someone has an ad blocker, those errors won't be, be, be sent. So that's the, that's a reality that you can't really control. So sometimes you just have to be okay with that. Someone using Brave Browser won't be sent because they block everything right. by default. And that's like up to the users. Correct. I mean, that, that's the whole user's consent thing, privacy and all that. Yeah. So you, you're not going to get everyone's errors. That's the reality, but you're going to get a big chunk enough to fix stuff. Right. But honestly, that's it for me. Um, Matt, do you have anything else you want to add to this? No, other than uh, I guess one, actually one thing that I should have mentioned in the CSS section, because I'm literally making a TikTok tutorial for this right now. 
is uh, one thing you can use to uh, debug stuff is you can use the at supports at rule in CSS. You can see if something is supported and then you can change styles based on that. Um, it's not necessarily a debugger, but it can be used kind of innovatively like that. Like you could have your own status indicators and you could say like, hey, you know, is is has like the pseudo class has, is that supported? And in uh, Firefox right now, the answer to that is no, it's behind a flag unless the person has triggered on the flag, of course. So they can check that. There's also some sort of nuance with, I think it's like adjacent sibling selectors, even inside of a has, even with the flag on Firefox on is still not supported. So you can even check stuff like that. And so if you're making like maybe some browser tooling or something uh, that requires has, you could uh, debug and then, debug with that with with at supports and then you could also uh, change some styles around like maybe make something show up and say hey you know you're on firefox and unfortunately you can't use this you know has tooling and what i mean by tooling i mean like you know a little tool like on CodePen usually where it's used for someone to visually interact with a topic in this case has to see how it works without them actually going into the css and messing with it so at, at supports you know very useful in the actual uh, styling of things if things if things are supported or if things are not supported but also useful um, or potentially useful if innovatively used for debugging and so I'll have a video on that actually the shame is self plug I guess uh, on our TikTok I've been doing 60 seconds or less which are videos that are literally 60 seconds or less uh, which are teaching concepts mostly CSS right now there's some other stuff in there I think one other one or two other things I'm releasing them weekly ish because I've also been writing blog posts that go alongside them sometimes those take a while but um, yeah, if you want to check that out, please do. It'll probably be out by the time this episode airs. That's for sure. So, well, not for sure. But, uh, but anyway, I think that's it for this episode. Uh, if you had any other ways that you debug or you troubleshoot and maybe your own, you know, not even necessarily using something from a technical perspective, but you have your own unique troubleshooting method that you think is uh, worthwhile for other people to use, please let us know. And maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode or shared on one of the socials or something like that, but it is time to end. And before we do that, we do have our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from blue black digital via blueblackdigital.com, Tim from the web hacker on the web hacker.com, bib hashtash on nine media, nine Jason from geek life radio via geek life Michael Curie from MC web studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from yes web via yesweb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff and Kale, fire ant season via fireantseason.com, and a new one, gunner brunette via gunnerbrunette.com. Thanks, everyone, for supporting the show. And if you want to support the show yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML, all the things podcast, web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML, all the things. And on Twitter at HTML, everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.